chapter 1, just scroll down to verse 19. That was the beginning of the verses that we looked at on Wednesday. And so we, we covered all the way down through verse 34. But I want to focus on just this one question that was proposed to John the Baptist. And keep in mind, it is no light question. And there is, through Scripture, a balance of what it is that answers this question. John the Apostle makes this declaration in his Gospel, John 1.19. Now, this is the testimony of John. We've covered this on Wednesday because he doesn't use the term John the Baptist. He just calls him John. Now, the other gospel writers, when referring to John the Baptist, use the term John the Baptist. He was the one who was baptizing. Now, they use the term John the Baptist because they refer to John the disciple. They make a distinction. John, in his gospel, never refers to himself. doesn't once say, I'm John the apostle. I'm John the disciple. He doesn't say that. But he always refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I love that. That's incredible. Not, 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 oh, here I am, John, you know. I'm just the one whom Jesus loved. And, and, and in, in humility, he speaks of that. But, so he refers to John the Baptist only as John. And so he says, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent Pharisees and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, I don't know as a Christian how often you take questions like this and really want to know the answer. Do you really want to know who John was? Do you really want to know what made John tick? Do you really want to have that understanding why Jesus would make this statement, out of all the men born of women, all the prophets that have ever existed, there is none greater than John the Baptist. None. Absolutely amazing how you have Moses who can bring down plagues, destroy Egypt. He can go and with a rod simply part the Red Sea. They can all walk through. Egyptian army comes following, brings back the water. Now, you got to think, on a scale of 1 to 10, that's pretty high. You got Elijah calling fire down from heaven, consuming altars. Consuming water, consuming sacrifices, standing up to over 450 prophets of Baal. That's heavy-duty stuff. You have the, the prophets calling fire down from heaven when the captain said, hey, come on down. Said, oh, man of God, let fire come down, consume you and your 50. Just done. And you think, as prophets go, these guys are good. But they don't compare to John. And amazingly, Scripture says this is John. He performed no signs. He did no miracles. He didn't do anything that would wow someone. I mean, think about that. He's in the desert with camel's hair, eating wild locusts. How impressive is that? Just bringing people into the Jordan one by one and simply baptizing them for the remission of sins. But what's interesting is they see the people flocking to John. And they wonder, who are you? What, what is it that you're doing? <laughs> I'm simply doing the calling of Jesus. I wandered out in the wilderness. That's all I did. Someone came by and said, hey, you want to be baptized for the mission of sin? They go, sure. And they went and told a friend. And then that one went and their friends came. And he did it again. He did it again. And, and, and people started coming because it wasn't his work. It was the work of the Holy Spirit. And he recognizes that. There's something that I want you to understand about John. A couple of things when we really understand who is John, what makes him tick. When they ask this question, who are you? Now, I love what he does. He answers it by saying, I'm not the Christ. And there had to be an implication of when they're saying, who are you? you? You've got to have some kind of rank. You have to have some kind of position. You have to have some kind of prestige. Why are these people coming to you? Why aren't they flocking to us? They're in Jerusalem in the temple. Why are they all leaving? Why are they coming to you in the wilderness? What is it that you are? Who are you? And he simply said, I'm not the Christ. And then they asked him and says, okay, then what then? Are you Elijah? He said, no, I'm not. 
Are you the prophet? He answered, no. He said to him, who are you? Who are I, I got to tell the people who said, who are you? And he answers this. I'm a voice. I'm a voice. I want you to think about this for one moment here. What substance is a voice? He said, I'm not, I'm not the speaker. I'm the voice. See, God is the instrument. God is the speaker. I'm the voice. I'm of no substance. No substance at all. I'm a breath that's here and gone. Do you understand what John is saying of himself? I am of nothing. I'm of no consequence. I'm a voice. And God can make another voice. God can choose another voice. I'm nothing. I just happen to be the voice he's using. And I love the heart. And he says, and I'm the voice, he said. And notice, notice what he said. He said, I'm the voice of just one crying in the wilderness. <laughs> That's who I am. And, and, and I love the heart of it because it says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I'm a voice in the middle of nowhere. I'm a voice that is of no consequence. I mean, have you ever heard that, that saying that if a tree falls in the wood and no one's around to hear it, does it, does it make a noise? And here he is, just in the wilderness, being a voice of God. And the voice is simply saying this, make straight the way of the Lord. You need to get right with God. Oh, he's coming. He's coming. Make no mistake. And you need to get right with it. And I love the heart that John does. He makes himself simply of no reputation. He makes himself of no substance. In the third chapter of the Gospel of John, we'll get there in time, but I want to read to you a little portion about who John is and how he works. It'll be going well to answer our question, who are you? It says this in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came to the land, came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized so we understand that John the Baptist is baptizing. Jesus and his disciples, they're coming and people are being baptized. And I want you to make a note here. Just jump ahead to chapter 4, verse 2. It says, although Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples. Jesus ministered. He watched over. His disciples did the baptism. And so you have John doing baptism. Jesus' disciples now coming and doing baptism. And it says this in verse 23, now John, this is John the Baptist, also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, now they're having a debate. They're having a debate about purification. And it isn't John and disciples of Jesus. They're, they're simply John's and, and, and some of the Jews. So John and, the, and Jesus' disciples weren't disputing, just John and some of the other Jews. And, and here's what they do in the dispute. They try to make John feel bad. <laughs> Do you understand? They're, they're, they're not winning the argument. And so all they can do is try to cut John down. Notice what they say in their debate about purification, verse 26 of John 3. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, it's just nice, call him teacher, puff him up a little bit. He who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you've testified, behold, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. Do you understand? You're, 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 you're losing your touch. You used to have everybody come to you. Now they're all going to him. And here we are, and we're just a couple of the stragglers, but we're asking, what's going on with you? Have you lost your touch? Is something going on? And, and, and I think it's interesting that, that what we begin to see here is they don't try to develop their discussion, their theology. All they can do is try to cut down John. They're all going to this guy. And I love what John does. In verse 27, he answered and said, a man can receive nothing 
unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. He who has the bride, in other words, the people that are now flocking to Christ, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which is me, I don't have the bride, I don't have that, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices. He comes to the point and says, they're going to him, I'm rejoicing. And he makes this statement, not only does he rejoice, but he rejoices greatly. The bridegroom is being fulfilled to the person that he is. And he rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Let them go to him. Let them hear him. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Do you understand that what we're seeing in John when they ask the question, who are you, is this. Lessons in humility. That's what this is all about. Lessons in humility. Now, I don't know about you, but maybe you have seen certain Christians and there's this perceived humility about them. And we sometimes as Christians think, well, that's false humility or this man has no humility. And we try to determine humility by our thinking and our understanding of it. But what I want to do this morning is I want to look with the power of the Holy Spirit into his word to answer the question, what is biblical humility? What does that look like? And I think it's going to shock you. I think when we see what biblical humility is, that it's different than what we do in our feigned humility. There are times that people will come to me and, and they'll, you know, say, wow, Pastor Lowe, that was an incredible message. I'm like, isn't God good? There are other people that you would go and say, wow, what a great message. Oh, it's not me. It's the Lord. You know, and that kind of attitude is like, no, I'm excited like you're excited. I can be excited about a message. Why? Because I know it's not mine. I know it's God's. And I can be just as excited. I don't have to pay you know, this, this false humility. Oh, it's not me. It's, it's the Lord. You know that. But I can praise God. Yeah, isn't God good? God is so faithful. Do you understand that, that one is a perceived humility? Another is honestly, it's biblical humility. And biblical humility is not walking with your eyes down. It isn't, isn't walking or not walking at all. I can't do anything. It all has to be God. No, be excited about what God is doing. And I love what John is declaring here. He's excited. He says, listen, you have to understand the joy of mine is fulfilled. When someone says, wow, what a great message God is challenging me. The joy of mine is fulfilled. You understand I don't have to just pretend that it has no consequence. It does have consequence. You're hearing from God. He's challenging you. You're, you're growing in your faith. You're growing in your walk. And I can be excited like you're excited. Biblical humility is not just keeping your eyes down and standing there all slunched, but recognize John is saying, man, I'm so excited. You guys are trying to put me down, but I'm excited. They're looking to Christ. They're going to Christ. This is what I've always wanted. And he makes this statement in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. See, it's one thing for me to come and declare a message. It's another thing for eventually you, you hear these words enough. You go through these passages. You're hearing me ask questions and answering them with scripture then you begin to ask questions answering them with scripture and you understand as you look to scripture to answer your questions i'm decreasing he's increasing 
Now, there's a, pur- a purpose, a time that I do need to come and declare. It helps keep us all in the balance. But you have to understand the beauty of what biblical humility looks like. And it isn't cowering down. It isn't, it isn't this, oh, it's not me. It's, it's, isn't God good? Oh, this joy of mine is fulfilled. And, and so when we look to this, there's a passage, and I want you to be aware of it, of what Jesus says of John, Matthew chapter 11. A couple of verses I want to read to you. I want to start reading in verses um, 7 through 11, because Jesus is going to be asking this question. Then I'm going to read verse 29, just to kind of keep it into a context. But it says this in Matthew chapter 11, Verse 7, as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, John the Baptist, what did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? <laughs> it's incredible what he's saying. What did you go to? Did you go to see something that was moved, shaken all over the place? Now you understand. John is immovable. John knew what his ministry was. John did his ministry. Regardless of what anyone said, regardless of what anyone did, John knew his calling. And understand that some people think that humility means that you have to always adjust. You know what? Okay, well, if that's what you need me to be, I'll be that then. No, understand, be all things so that you you can all win something to Christ. You can be all things to all men. But you don't compromise the things that God called you to do and God called you to say. So when you're looking to this, I love the heart. He says, you know, what what did you go in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in garments, in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. But what did you go out to see? Do you understand? He's saying again, what did you go out to see? What did you go out to see? What did you go out to see? Not a reed shaken by the hand, not a bunch of movement whenever the, the wind blows this way, it goes over there. Whenever the wind blows this way, it goes. that's what politicians do. What are the polls saying today? What do I got to say? Not, not, not what do I believe and what am I going to do, but, but what do I have to say? What do I have to do to convince them? And, and John is doing one thing. So often they think that what biblical humility is, is actually saying, well, what do you need me to say? And now I'm going to say that to encourage you. Biblical humility is I'm going to say what God told me to say, but I'm going to realize that it's not my words. It isn't my ministry. It's still all him. It isn't taking credit for it. It isn't trying to, in my own self, try to get this rank or possession. I'm not trying to get recognition for me. What what I'm seeking to do is simply say, I'm going to be a voice. It's him. It's his word. It's his heart. It's his spirit. But I am going to be a voice. So when you hear this, hear it not as words of men, but as it is the words of God. And so he would again and again say, what'd you go to see? What'd you go to see? He went to see a reed shaken by the wind. Did you get to see someone in soft garments? <laughs> he wore camel's hair. I don't know if you've ever ridden on a camel. Itchy. Itchy stuff. And then he asked this question. What'd you go out to see in verse 9? He said, a prophet. You went to go seeing someone proclaiming the word of God. You went to see a voice. That's what he was. You went to see a prophet. And yes, I say to you more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. He will prepare your way before you. Surely I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. So from the time of, of you know, Moses and, and all the way up now to Malachi and to John, there's not been one greater than him. But then Jesus says this, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, how can he say that? If all the men that have ever been born is greater because we now have the Holy Spirit. And we have the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. And I think it's important that Jesus begins to point out this question. What did you go to see? You didn't go to see someone of prestige. 
You didn't go to see someone of rank. You didn't go to see the, 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 the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You didn't go see the elders of the people of Israel. You went to see a no one in nowhere speaking forth one message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it wasn't even a popular message. It wasn't, you're fine. Just do your thing. It was a message. You need to look at your hearts and you need to change. And I, I love the, the heart that what we begin to see is this. When the people came to John and they were saying, listen, that he who's baptizing, you know, that, that you had made mention of, he's, everyone's coming to him. Do you realize that John didn't stop his work? Think about that for just a moment. John's still in the wilderness. He's still baptizing. He doesn't stop because everybody's going to Jesus. God had not told him to stop. He's not in competition. Like, if I get one, then I'm going to baptize the one. And I love the heart of what we see because John does not stop his work when there's another work that's going on. And, and it's a work that God is doing. Jesus and his disciples are there. His disciples are baptizing. John still continues his work. Why? Because what if someone wanders over this way? I want to be available. I'm here where God called me to be. I'm doing what God called me to do. And just because there's another work that seems more successful, it doesn't mean that you stop the work that you're doing. And the other thing that John does so beautifully, and, and this is where true biblical humility comes in, you don't stop the work because it doesn't seem to be what everyone else is doing. See, some people say, well, well, apparently, you know, I shouldn't be doing this because that's where the popular group is. This is where the other group is. No, you, you're, you're faithful to God. Do you understand that some people in their humility say, well, then I, apparently I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. If there's one, you do what God called you to do. And I love what John does because he doesn't stop his work. He's not looking for, for rank or position or prestige. He isn't looking for this privilege of look at who I am. Yeah, there was a time where people were going to him and now they're going to Jesus. Hey, my ministry, my joy is fulfilled. I'm still doing what God called me to do. And I'm not looking to have this position or have people recognize, oh my goodness, look at how many people are coming to you. You're wonderful. <laughs> if God brings someone, he brings someone. If he brings someone somewhere else, he brings them somewhere else. But you recognize what God is doing. And John does not compare his work. He doesn't even look to think about what his work should be. And I think this is what's so important. When we have a ministry, sometimes in our mind, we have this vision of what the ministry is going to look like in next week or next month or next year or in five years. And so we make these plans. This is what the ministry is going to be in, in one year, in five years. And all of a sudden, what happens? The ministry doesn't look like we thought it was going to look like. What do you do then? You do the ministry. Do you understand? This is true biblical humility, not trying to determine what God wants. And so I love this because John is not concerned with an outcome. And if you have a ministry and you're concerned with the outcome, then you're missing what God has called you to do in the ministry. There were a lot of people that asked the question, why I would leave Southern California with my wife and our kids and come to Milwaukee. Why would you do this? And keep in mind that one of the things that God taught me while I was there in Southern California is I'm not coming for you. I'm not coming because here I was, I was in, in Calvary Chapel of Vista and I was taught and I know the word. I went through Bible college. So here I am. You're so lucky to have me and I'm coming here to benefit you. That wasn't the case. God said, Lowell, I have a area that I need to teach you about you. It's called Milwaukee and I'm going to bring you there. And there's going to be people there, and they're going to be 
have a benefit because of the ministry, but you're not there to because you're superior to them. You're there because I have to teach you things. And I'll tell you what, the things that God has taught me and still teaching me. And it's, it's one of those things where it's so important. Do not be concerned with the outcome of how you expect a ministry to look, but always just the obedience of what you've called me to do. I love this about John. He's not concerned about the outcome. He's not concerned that more people are going to Jesus. I'm just concerned that I'm being obedient to what God called me to do. And now that I realize, thank you for telling me they're all coming to him because I was telling them, behold the Lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the world. Go to him. I have always needed to decrease. He must increase. Thank you for making my joy full. Do you understand that when you have true biblical humility, you can't be put down? <laughs> because all you're doing is, I'm not looking for an outcome. I'm looking for my obedience, and I'm being obedient. And if I'm being obedient, that's all I want. That's all I need. And it's, it's just so important that what we begin to see is, I just want to be obedient to the task that was given to me. What I really want is this. I want to live my life in his service. That's the key to biblical humility. I'm living my life in his service. Peter says something unique in his epistle. I want, I want to read it to you, and, and while I'm reading it to you, if you want to just back up a little bit and go to the book of James and, and go to chapter 3. But while you go to James 3, I want to read 1 Peter 5, 5, and 6. Peter makes this statement and he says this in 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to the elders. He talks about humbling yourself, not thinking that you're better, but literally submitting yourselves to the elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. And so now it's not just to the elders. All of you need to not consider yourself as greater than the other person next to you. Submit yourself to one another. And then he says this, and be clothed in humility. In other words, wrap yourself in it. Wrap yourself in humility. And then he says this, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. So it's not humbling yourself so you can be exalted. Just humble yourself. When God's ready to exalt you, when he's ready to do the work, he'll do it in his time, not your time. Like, I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to do this ministry so it'll be great. And then everyone will pat me on the back and say, wow, look at who you are. You deserve recognition. You deserve prestige. <laughs> no, you don't. Just simply humble yourself. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourself under the one that can do all things. It's not us. And I think it's so important in these lessons of humility to recognize who God is and who we are. James says something so incredible, so powerful in his epistle. I want to read to you here in the third chapter. I want to read verses 13 through 18 for you so you can really understand this basis of who John is. And as we read this, you're going to say, wow, this is John the Baptist. Not as in John the Baptist, it sounds like Jesus too. Sounds like Paul too. But notice what it says. In James chapter 3, beginning verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. You understand it isn't, it isn't pride. It isn't, oh, look at how good I am. He says, no, no, your, your good context is this, that your works are done in the meekness of wisdom. What is the meekness of wisdom? Well, it's the same thing that we were singing in that last worship song that the Spirit so beautifully impressed upon Regan and Marianne this is who you are. This is who you are. You're the way maker. You're the miracle worker. This is who you are. All these things. This is you. This is you. And who am I? I'm nothing. I'm a voice. 
That's all I am. I'm a, I'm a vessel that you can use and you can wield to whatever degree you want to, but I myself, outside of your hand, am nothing. Do you realize that there are certain tools that men have in their toolbox that are their favorites? There just are. I love this hammer. I love this knife. I love this flashlight. I love this gun. But understand that outside of the person's hand, that tool is what? It just lays there. It just simply lays. It's nothing until what? Until it's in the hand of the one who's going to use it. Once it's in the hand of that person, then it becomes amazing. Then it has purpose. Then it's being used. But when it's not being used, think about it. You have favorite tools, but they just stay in the toolbox. <laughs> Until you need it. It's like, oh, I can't wait to have a project to use this tool again because I love this tool. But until you have the project, you wait. And this is what's so important. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy, self-seeking, if you're trying to compare your ministry to someone else, if you have what he says here is bitter envy, Oh, my ministry should be this, and my ministry should be this, and it should look like this, and my wife should do this, and my husband should do this, and my friends should do this. And we always look to what would make us have more prestige, us have more ranking, us have, they, they would look to us like, oh, how amazing it must be to be you. Yes, it is. <laughs> You're so right. That's not what it is. And I love the heart of God because he makes that statement, don't have bitter envy. Don't, don't try to compare or justify or, or try to determine what the ministry looks like. His ways are so far beyond our ways. But I love the fact that what God does is this. He makes that statement here in verse 14 of, of, of James 3. He says, if you have bitter envy, self-seeking in your heart. Self-seeking. I need you to know how great I am. I need you to know how wonderful I am. I need you to know how humble I am. Isn't that incredible? He says, do not boast and lie against the truth. See, the, the truth, God is everything. We are nothing apart from him. And then he says this, this, is, this wisdom, this bitter envy, self-seeking, does not descend from above, but is earthly, it's sensual, he calls it demonic. This pride is from the enemy, who was, of course, the, the one who birthed pride. This, and so he says this, verse 16, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first peaceable. You understand? It's not trying to debate. It's not trying to say, oh, let, let me tell you what you should be doing as a Christian. Let me tell you what the scripture really means. I love the heart because remember where, where Paul said it in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, where he said, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. It isn't about determining, now I have the answer. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. He says, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You don't have to be argumentative to win an argument. And, and then when you lose, you try to say, well, everybody's going here. They're all following him over there. You're nothing now. Praise God. I've done what was my ministry to do. And I love the heart because what we recognize is this. This is truly what ministry is supposed to be. In James chapter 4, verse 6, it talks about this. He gives more grace. In other words, he uses us in ways that we don't deserve. He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I need God's grace. And the reason I need God's grace is because without him, I can do nothing. Left to my own will and my own desires and my own thinking, it can only be corrupt. 
But with his spirit and his word, I can be challenged and I can grow and he can renew my mind. But it's him who does it. It's not look at how I'm renewing my mind. Look at how good I am at praying now. Look at how good I am at scripture now. That's not the key to it. It isn't looking to what I do. Now, granted, humility isn't doing nothing. Humility isn't being inactive because we see John still baptizing. Paul actually makes this statement there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to read to you just one verse within this portion. In verse 10, Paul makes this statement. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. In other words, I don't deserve to be in this position, but by his grace, I am. And he says this, his grace towards me was not in vain, and I labored more abundantly than they all. In other words, they did a lot. I did more. Do you realize what he's saying? Like, Paul, that's not very humble of you. I mean, you look and see what they did, but man, it was nothing compared to what I did. But notice what Paul says at the end. He said, I labored. Yes, I did. I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet he says this, not I. And this is the key. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. See, there was fruit but the fruit is his. There was labor, but the, the ability that was given was his. And all I became was an instrument. And so keep in mind that humility isn't just stopping what you're doing. Humility is trying to take credit for what you're doing. It's, it's my work. It's my message. It's my ministry. It, you know, it's, it isn't you. If you think that your ministry as a spouse, whether it's a husband or a wife, look at how good I am in doing my ministry. Do you think that it's you? Do you really think that it's you? When you fail, it is you. Well, let me tell you that. But when you succeed, <laughs> when you succeed, it's the Lord. It's the grace that is in you. Any ministry that you do, whether it's a friend or a spouse or, or, you know, brother or sister encouraging someone and you give them counsel. Say, this is what God did in my life, but here's his word. Let that become power for you. It isn't you then. Do you understand that it's him? He is everything. We're nothing apart from him. Because when we take credit for things, that's where it's going to be a problem. Let me share with you one passage to kind of verify that when we take credit for things, there's going to be a problem found in Daniel chapter 4. When I say that instantly, your mind goes, oh, wow, I know that passage. Because in Daniel chapter 4, there was a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And, and the, the, the dream is, is a kind of a crazy dream. And, and so he, he was, you know, trying to figure this out and, and he just couldn't. And, and eventually Daniel will come and he will give an interpretation. Now, now what is the, 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 the dream? Well, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 6, he said, I was looking, behold, a tree in the midst of the earth. And its height was great, and the tree, the tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen um, to the ends of all the earth, its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heaven dwelt in its branches, and all the flesh was fed from it. He said, I saw this beautiful tree reach to the heavens, and, it, and everyone was blessed because of it. And, and what happens is this. That tree is Nebuchadnezzar. It's him. His, he was being used by God to bless and bless and bless and also to chastise, but he was used by God. And then it says this in verse 13, he says, And I saw in the visions in my head while I was on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. And he cried with a loud voice, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast go out from under it. And the birds from its branches nevertheless leave the stump and the roots. Bound it with a band of iron and bronze. Then the tender grass of the field and let it be wet with the dew of heaven. Let him graze 
Notice it says, let him graze with the beast of the grass of the earth and let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones. In order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and he gives it to whomever he will and he sets it over the lowest of men. Let me read that to you one more time. Verse 17, in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and he gives it to whomever he will and he sets it over the lowest of men. This may bend some of you out of shape and it may bring others to a point of, of exaltation. But you have to understand that a few years ago, there was this message that was going out, make America great again. Make America great again. And, and truly, the economy did improve. I'm not going to deny that it didn't. But you have to understand, the message isn't making America great again because America needs to repent. America needs to be broken. America needs to be humble. Not be great. We already think we're great. We already think we're all that and more. What we need to do is America, make America holy again. Break us, make us repent, make us turn, draw us to you. Whatever your word declares, this is what we want to do as a nation. And keep in mind, I'm going to be honest with you, that the Republicans don't have the answers, the Democrats don't have the answer, but Jesus has the answer. And the thing is, is that we need to humble ourselves and really take, God, what is it that you have to say for us as a nation? What do you have to say for us as a church? What do you have to say to me personally through your word? What do I need to change in me? And that's what I need to do. And so we see that here God is, is looking. He's looking for the lowliest of men that he can give the kingdom to. Well, at that point, I want to take you down here now to a point where Daniel begins to actually give the interpretation. It says in Daniel 4, verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen, and they will wet you with the dew of heaven. Seven times shall pass over you. That means seven years till you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men. And he gives it to whomever he chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. God's going to humble you. And then once you're humbled, there's a stump. Your kingdom's going to grow again. Therefore, O king, and this is what Daniel says, let my advice be acceptable for you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Repent and turn to God. Recognize who he is. Recognize what he does. And then in verse 28, all of this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. A whole year later, he forgot the message. Now, for 12 months, there was prosperity. There was all these things. And at the end of 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. And this king spoke, saying, Is, it, is not this great Babylon that I have built. Notice he says, I've built this. Now, now Paul says, I've labored more than the all. Yet what? It wasn't I, but the grace of God that was in me. So you can build the palace. You can be used as an instrument to build the palace, but understand you're a vessel of God. So it isn't the fact that he built it. It's the fact that he took credit. Is this not great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling for my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Problem. Let me just define that. Problem. Look at how great I am for my majesty, my prestige, my, 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 my. While the words, verse 31, were still in the king's mouth. There was going to be more mys in there, granted. 
While the words were still in his mouth, a voice fell from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. They shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen. Seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomever he chooses. At that very offer, that, uh, that very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men. He ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. At the end of the time, verse 34, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever and ever. Amen. See, he recognized I'm simply a vessel. I'm an instrument. And then he says this, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. See, he gets it. Everything and everyone is nothing. And it's about God, only about God, only about him, only about his kingdom. And, and I want his kingdom exalted from generation to generation. He does according to his will in the army of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, why have, you know, what have you done? At the same time, my reasoning returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, the honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors, my nobles restored to me. And I was restored to my kingdom. An excellent majesty was added to me. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. All whose works are truth. You understand? It's his works, not mine. And his ways, justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. And boy, does Nebuchadnezzar know that. And this is that understanding where we see he thought it was him. Now, now don't get me wrong. And I'm going to repeat this again. It's not that you can't do works. It's not that you can't do more works than everyone else. But you realize that it's not you. It's the grace of God that's in you. If you pray more than somebody else, it's not you. It's the grace of God that's in you. If you have an understanding of Scripture, it's not you. It's the grace of God that's in you. If you have any giftings at all, it's not you, but the grace of God that's in you. It's him who wields you to do this work. Humility 101. If you've never taken the class, let me just suggest that it. it's an amazing class to you. But what you're going to learn in Humility 101 is this, emptiness. What do you learn in Humility 101? Emptiness. It's not you. It has never been you. It will never be you. It's emptiness. I need to empty myself. Empty, 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 empty is what I need to do. And I realize that, that emptiness is the key to humility. I have nothing to offer God. I have no intelligence, no wisdom say, God, let me tell you what's going on in the world and how you need to fix it. Let me tell you what's going on in my government and how to fix it. Let me tell you what's going on in your church and how to fix it. As if God is going to say, well, I never thought of that. Thank you. Why don't you come and sit at my right hand? I'll just move Jesus off the side. And you've taken this throne before. You've always wanted it. You, you realize what's going on here? It's so important to recognize here the heart of God. It's emptiness. That's what true humility is. When anything is accomplished, it's not me, it's God. And I realize that that's the other key to humility. One is emptiness, and two is this. If you want the keys to humility, right? Number one, emptiness. I have nothing to offer, nothing to gain. It's God's glory. And the other is this, without God. That's number two, without God. Without God, I could do nothing. So all of my confidence, all of my peace, all of my hope, all of my power, all of my wisdom, all of my boasting is in Christ alone. That's where it's all in. As I look to Jesus, if you recognize it's Christ in me, oh, my joy is fulfilled. I have nothing to offer except my life as a vessel for him to use. That is it. Nothing more, nothing less.
And I think that when we, when we look to these things, when we look to these truths, we realize, you know what, well, Lord, I don't have anything to offer. I've never had anything to offer. And so as we come to this point, as we come to that understanding, this is the key. Now, you know that I use this verse a lot. It's actually one of my life verses. I actually have it engraved onto my, my, the, the, the Bible that I have. But it says this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Do you realize it's not me? It's not what I'm doing. It's not what I can manufacture. It's not I'm who living, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I live by faith in the Son of God, this life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. I was nothing he purchased me as nothing, and then he uses me as an instrument for his glory. I'll take that. But do you realize what that does? It doesn't allow me to have any pride because I was nothing. I needed to be redeemed. I needed to be purchased. And he loved me when I was unlovable. He redeemed me when I was unworthy. Do you realize what this means? It means I can boast in him. I can have pride in him. I can rejoice in him. But I realize that I have nothing to offer at all. Jesus made an incredible statement there in the Beatitudes. If you're familiar with that passage there in, in Matthew chapter 5, the very first statement that he makes is this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are bankrupt. Blessed are those who have nothing. Because the kingdom of heaven is yours. You know what that means? That if I have something, the kingdom of heaven isn't. Until I realize I'm nothing, absolutely nothing without him, that I'm an empty vessel that can only find power and purpose when he wields me, when he's the one who moves me. This is where the heart is. And, and I love it because I have nothing to offer God that he doesn't supply. <laughs> Do you understand? He gives me wisdom so I can share it. I, I'm like, I had any wisdom. He gave me the wisdom. It's his heart. And this is what I think is so important to recognize that without God, we can do nothing. As we, we come to this understanding and realize, okay, we're all spiritually bank, bankrupt. So God is the one who does all the things. He doesn't need me. He can do it himself or he can use angels. He can do anything, but he chooses to say, I want to use you to be a voice. Why? Because people will say, boy, is your God good. Boy, is your God strong. Boy, is your God wise. Because if it was anything else, I couldn't receive. And to know that if he can use you like he uses Balaam's donkey, what an incredible God we serve. And, and, and so keep in mind that, that we have to realize, first and foremost, we have nothing to offer. There's nothing that you can offer God that he doesn't give to you to say, I'm going to use this in you. I'm going to put this in you so that I can use you as an instrument. We in ourselves have nothing to offer God. It's a good thing to know about wisdom. We're empty. The other thing is this, is be willing to learn. I hate to say it, be willing to learn. Now, I have, in this fellowship, in this fellowship alone, I've taught through every verse, every chapter, every book, twice. Going through it a, a third time out in Lake Country, going through it a fourth time here, this is kind of amazing to see. And you know what? Now, now, now in that, I'm reading and reading and reading, and I could not tell you. I could not tell you how many times I've read through my Bible. I, you know, just, I, I do. But it's not me. It's, it's, it's just God. But he, understand, I still, I'm still learning. Do you realize I taught through the Bible expositionally? I taught through in-depth expositionally. I taught through it applicationally. I've taught through it, and I'm still learning. Every single time I'm learning. This connects to this, and this connects to this. This is amazing, God. I'm amazed, on, on, and I don't think I'll even come close to understanding the fullness of this book. I'm going I'm to share with you what I learned, share with you what we're, we're, we're able to receive. But, but keep in mind, we need to be teachable. We need to. 
But scripture says this, and just in case you think, oh, I figured this out. Now I understand this doctrine. Now I understand that doctrine. In case you think you figure it out, what, what scripture says is this in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. We see in a mirror dimly. We only see a little bit of what's going on. And, and so I, I know in part, only a little bit. I understand a little bit of what's going on. I can see a little bit what's happening in the physical sense. I don't know what's happening in the spiritual sense. I don't know what's going on inside your life or what your heart is or what the turning is. I don't understand those things. But I do know this. I do know how good God is. and I do know that he has a plan and all those things that God is doing. I want to see him glorified. There's a passage I want to read it to you found in the book of Romans chapter 11. And in chapter 11, just a few verses, I want to read to you verses 33 through 36. It makes this statement, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Do you understand where wisdom comes from? It's God. God alone is the depths of the riches, the wisdom, the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and his ways past finding out. We'll never fully understand everything in this word for who has known the mind of the Lord or who's become his counselor, who's first given to him, and it, and it shall be repaid to him. Do you think you can offer to God first? Hey, you've never seen this one before, God. Let me tell you. Let me give you this piece of wisdom. And God can say, oh, my, thank you. I never knew that. My omniscience missed that one or something. But I love the fact it says you, you can never give to God first. He gives to you, and then he uses you. And so his ways are just so past finding out. That, that's what, you know, he says in, in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Let me just simply read those two verses to you. But it makes this statement. He says this. Got to get to the right page. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. He says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts and your thoughts. You can't ever grasp God. So it's important to realize, one, I have nothing to offer. That's the key to humility, emptiness. And the other is this, without God I can do nothing. I need to be willing to be taught. I need to be willing to learn. I have to be teachable. If you're not teachable, it, there's pride. There's pride. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. And the other is this. The, the last is yielding. I need to yield my thinking, my actions, my life under the clear teachings of Scripture. That when God's word says something in opposition to my lifestyle, I change my lifestyle. When God's spirit says something that's different than my thinking, I need to change my thinking. And I don't need to go with the norm. I don't need to go with the popular club. I need to go with God. And, 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 and if it's only me against all these other prophets, I still need to be me. If it's just John and a few people who's coming and everybody else is going to Jesus, I still need to be here where God's called me to be here. And it's so important to understand this. I need to yield my thinking to God's word. I need to yield my, my, my life under the clear teachings of the spirit moving and the scripture as a whole. And it isn't just finding one scripture to agree with me. It's trying to determine what does the whole of the book teach on this principle, on this subject. Which is why we're looking at biblical humility in this way. Do you understand? It isn't just putting your eyes down. It is like, God, you're good. You are good and you are faithful and you are true. There's a passage I want to read to you found in the gospel of, of, of Luke. And it's in chapter 18. You'll know it when I start reading it. I'm going to read from verses 9 to 14. But in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 5, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Look at me, you're not near as good as me. And within this parable, he said this, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now the Pharisee would be of the who's who, the tax collector would be, oh, you're one of those. Despised. And these two went up to the, to the temple to pray. The Pharisee, Jesus said in verse 11, stood and prayed thus with himself. <laughs> 
He didn't pray to God. He's like, I'm my own God. I'm amazing. Says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithe of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. One saw his worth as, oh my goodness, pat me on the back, God. You're lucky to have me. The other realized, God, I have nothing to offer you. I'm a wretch. And as I have nothing to offer you, I am so aware of my sin. I'm so aware of my unworthiness. And I'm so aware that if any blessing comes, it's your grace and it's not my worth. And this is the key, I think, because what Jesus taught, and here's what the Lord declares of the two of these in verse 14 of Luke 18. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. We need to learn to cast our cares completely on the Lord. That any worth that I have, Lord, it's all there. I have nothing to offer you. And there's nothing I can do that unless you use me. You understand? This is where, where John has this understanding of true humility. Because we have a tendency of once we, we are used by God, we think, oh, look at me now, look at me now, look at what I can do. See, there was a point where the prophet Isaiah was being used by God. And, and in being used by God, I, I want to take you to just a little, a couple of verses beginning in Isaiah. And what I want to start with this, I want to start in, in looking at Isaiah. And I want to read to you from chapter 3, verse 9. And it makes this statement. Isaiah speaking, he says, woe to their soul. And in verse 11 of Isaiah 3, he says, woe to the wicked. He's, he's just really just nailing it. And in chapter 5, he says, woe to those who join house to house. In verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning. And then he goes on in verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity. And then in verse 20, woe to those who call evil good. In verse 22, woe to men mighty in drinking. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating. He's just slamming these woes everywhere. And he's like, man, you guys are just a mess. You're a mess. You're a mess. And then... In chapter 6, he sees the Lord. And he sees God in his temple. He sees God in his glory. He sees God in all this. And then in verse 5 of chapter 6, he says this, Woe to me, for I am undone. Oh, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I am a man who's not of worth. I see your glory, and then I see me, and I realize that, that I, I have no right to tell people, woe is you, unless it's you using me as a voice, because I have no standing. I have no ability. I have no concept of what is right or what is wrong other than you and your spirit and your word. This is the heart. And once we grasp that, once we realize what that is, then we can come to this place like John and realize, okay, God, when they ask John, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? You can simply say this. I'm an instrument that God chooses to use by his grace. That's it. I'm just a voice. I'm no substance in and of me. But if God's going to use me, there's going to be power. And, and my joy comes this only being used by God. Not by determining what the results should be when he uses me, but just being used by him. Isn't that amazing? Because if we come before God and say, woe is me, he says, but that's okay. I'm, I'm going to touch your lips. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to put a turban on you. I'm going to put new robes on you. I'm going to bless you because this is who I am. And then I can say, oh God, you're good. Do you understand? And then anything that I accomplish and oh know this. I want to accomplish things, and I want God to use me in my life, and I want to rejoice that he's using me in my life. But it's never me. See, and this is what John determines. He must increase, but I must decrease over and over again. God, you live your life. You do your will. Use me as an instrument. The life that I now live in the flesh 
I live by faith in the Son of God. He's living his life. He's doing his will through me. And anything that accomplishes, I'm not worthy to be called, but yet I am what I am, but by the grace of God. By the grace of God, by, by only his grace, only his love, can he use me and he chooses to use me. And know this, dear saint, he wants to use you. But when he uses you, don't pat yourself on the back thinking, oh, now it's a good thing he used me. <laughs> you know, he's got a real winner here. Like, no, no, I'm able to do anything with nothing. God chooses the foolish things. He chooses the base things. But he chooses the humble things. And he exalts them. Look at what I can do with you. Amen? Amen. Well, Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this heart. It was one of those things that, that, that Peter had it all figured out. He went fishing and fishing and fishing and found nothing. And then he used his boat. And he said, oh, Peter, go ahead. Cast your net on the other side. On the right side of the boat. And he goes, oh, nevertheless, at your word. I know what I'm doing. You have no clue. And he brings in this incredible haul. And, and when he realized he knows nothing. He realized that only at your word is there power, is there life, is there prosperity. He would say, Lord, depart from me, for I am unworthy. And yet you would call him, and you'd bring him into your inner circle, and he'd be one of the three, Peter, James, and John. Father, we're not worthy. We don't know. But, Father, we are so grateful when you use us. Thank you, Lord, for, for just the disciple, your apostle John, and the lessons that he taught us, how he brought us through an understanding of who John the Baptist was and where his power came. He was the greatest of all the prophets, but he didn't do any signs. He didn't do any miracles, but he pointed people to you, Jesus. It was all about you. It was all about you. Make that true to us. That is all about you, that we desire to know nothing else except you, Jesus, and you crucified, that you've redeemed unworthy man and you've set your love upon us for your purposes. Do the work we ask in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said.